Heavenly Father, as we approach this, your holy word, we ask that you would illumine our hearts and our minds in ways that you have never done before, so that we might find new meaning in this passage this morning. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. The Old Testament reading is from the uh, book of Leviticus, reading from chapter 19, verses 9 through 18, on page 124 in the Pew Bible. Listen now to the word of the Lord. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your, of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Is this on? Am I on? Let's see. Okay. Yeah, that was loud. Sorry. If you were uh, asleep, now you're awake. Um, this is 11 o'clock worship service. I want to make sure you're apparent aware of what's going on. You know, people, as they read through the Bible, they'll get to Leviticus. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you hit Leviticus, it's like a stop sign. I mean, it is slow going. You know, you read Genesis, it's very exciting, the story of creation, uh, the story of Noah, the story of Abraham, the story of Joseph and the technicolored coat, which is a great, great story, great musical too. Uh, you know, and then you get to Exodus and you get to Moses and everyone's seen the Ten Commandments, right, with starring Charlton Heston. Great movie, great book. But then you get to Leviticus and you've got all these rules and regulations and you're like, man, do we really need Leviticus? I had someone ask me that once. Do we really need Leviticus? There it was, Leviticus 19, the, the second most important commandment we find in Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, we need God's word. We need all of God's word to guide us and to lead us together. If you were with us last week, and admittedly I wasn't, but I did get to hear Kim's sermon. He did a great job talking about our core four strategy. We have a core four strategy as a church. It's worship, grow, connect, and serve. If you forget what it is, there are the banners. You can just read those. But we believe every follower of Jesus should worship God weekly in corporate worship. Because as we gather together, as two or more gather together in Christ's name, Jesus promises to be there. And as we come into the presence of Christ, you know, we're, we're guided and led and encouraged. And, of course, we, we practice Reformed worship, which means that we come out of the Reformation where Scripture was our ultimate authority and faith in life. And so our services of worship are, are centered around the reading and preaching of God's Word, and it's saturated with Scripture. We use Scripture to guide us and to nourish us. 
And we not only believe that we should worship weekly, but we also should seek to grow together in community, specifically in some Bible studies or Sunday school classes, other community. And we believe that, specifically at this church, that we grow best in intergenerational ministry. Many of you were able to participate just a moment ago in a backpack blessing where we had all of our students, all of our elementary age students uh, there in the parlor, and we had a brunch together. And we have an opportunity as a congregation to volunteer to pray for a different student in our church. If you remember from the Sticky Faith uh, study that was done at Fuller Seminary, they discovered that the children who are most likely to come back to church are the ones who have at least five significant relationships with adults within the church. Not just a paid staff member, but a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader or just simply someone who who invests in them. So they begin to view church more as a family and not just another program in their life. It's easy to abandon a program, but it's hard to leave a family. And so we believe intergenerational ministry is the most important way we can grow in Christ as we seek to raise up the next generation for the kingdom of Christ. And of course, last week we talked about uh, connecting and how we believe that we can best make disciples and reach out by connecting through compassionate community. Just as Jesus loves a Samaritan woman at the well, we want to love our neighbors, we want to connect to them and help them connect to the body of Christ here at First Press so they might grow in their relationship with Christ, grow in their knowledge of God's love for them. Well, our fourth strategy is serve, serve. And, and of course, we know that we are called to love our neighbors ourselves as we just read about them. And we do that best by serving. But how can we serve our neighbor exactly? Well, I believe our gospel text helps answer that question. Turn in your pew Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 10. It may be found on page 1105 of your pew Bible, Luke chapter 10. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and, and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that Many, many years ago, you inspired a physician, a missionary named Luke, to get an orderly account of the life and the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. And he put pen to paper for his good friend Theophilus so that he might have an orderly account and that we might have an orderly account of the teachings and the life and the miracles of Jesus. God, I pray that now that as we read this powerful story, this parable of Jesus, that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts, that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25, listen to the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite When he came to the place and saw him, passed by 
on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, the Greek word for lawyer here is actually the term that Luke will use also to describe an expert in the law of God. This wasn't like a Perry Mason type of district attorney who was coming to interview Jesus. This was a lawyer who was an expert in the law of God. And lawyers have been following Jesus for quite some time, trying to catch Jesus in some kind of heresy. This lawyer comes to Jesus asking him a question about how he might inherit eternal life, really to test Jesus' orthodoxy. And Jesus, in his wisdom, turns the test back to the lawyer and says, well, what do you see the law says? And by turning to the law for its expertise, Jesus is affirming the authority of God's word to us. Well, this lawyer knows the word of God well, and so he quotes the most important commandment in all the Bible. We find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, which uh, Jews would often post on the doorposts of their homes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says, the second most important commandment that we read just a moment moment ago in Leviticus chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Good answer, Jesus said. That's That's a good answer. And then Jesus knows that this lawyer is here to test him. And and so he, he sits back reserved and he recognizes that this lawyer who's testing him is given a good answer, but this lawyer's heart is far, far from God. And so this lawyer continues and asks, but who is my neighbor exactly? Who is my neighbor exactly? I actually like the way that um, Eugene Peterson uh, translates that text. Uh, Specifically, he says, looking for a loophole, he asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Luke 29. Just how would you define neighbor? This lawyer is looking for a loophole. How would you define neighbor? How do we define neighbor? When we think about who it is God's calling us to love, who is our neighbor? Well, for Jews in the first century, they would have thought of their neighbor as, well, fellow Jews. I mean, surely God wouldn't want Jews who follow Yahweh to to love people like Samaritans who were half-breeds, who were very far from from God, and because they worshipped many different gods. In fact, the Samaritans, as as, uh, Kim pointed out last week, their descendants uh, they are descendants of the old northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And, and when that happened, uh, many of the Israelites were sent to exile. And the northern kingdom of uh, the Assyrians brought in people from foreign lands. 
And the, northern, the Israelites from the northern kingdom began to intermarry with these people from foreign lands, and they began to worship their foreign gods. And we can see throughout the history of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel that they were always practicing idolatry, worshiping, worshiping Baal or Asherah, all these false gods. And so when the Jew, the, this Jewish lawyer says, who is my neighbor, he's thinking, surely not a Samaritan or, or maybe some of these pagan Roman occupiers who are now occupying Israel and leading. Who is my neighbor? It's in the midst of this context as Jesus is in Samaria on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, ultimately to be crucified, that Jesus tells this most powerful story about who our neighbor is. For we continue reading in Luke chapter 10. But a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, this trip was a 17-mile trip from Jerusalem, which is on a hill, down to Jericho. As he travels down to Jericho, uh, he was robbed, and this was not uncommon. Robbers were known to wait on the side of the road to jump people, to attack people, and and because he was beaten, most likely he probably tried to resist. Sometimes they would rob him and leave you. But if you, if you fought back, they would beat you up. And so this man has been left for dead. But then notice what happens. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Glory, hallelujah, here is a priest. Can you imagine what the, this Jewish man, and most likely because he traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho, this man was probably a Jew. Everyone hearing this story would have immediately thought, oh, that's a Jew, because mostly Jews traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this Jew is traveling to Jericho. He gets robbed and beaten, left for dead, but probably with one eye opened, he sees this priest, and what an answer to prayer that must have been, to have a man of God come down. And be on the road to help him. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Think how disappointed that Jewish man who had been robbed and beaten and left for dead must have felt. When he sees a priest, one of his own religious leaders, and he sees him coming down the trail and what hope he must have had that this priest will help him. And yet he passes by on the other side and does nothing. Jesus goes on to say, so likewise a Levite. Now a Levite was someone from the tribe of Levi. Levi was the tribe that God had chosen and designated to help lead the worship for the people of Israel. A Levite comes by. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Again, he sees a priest and he's hopeful that maybe that priest will help him, but he doesn't. He passes by. But then now he sees a Levite, a Levite, a part of the holy tribe of Israel, and, and thinking, surely, well, the priest may have been too busy, but at least the Levite will take some time for me. I mean, the Levites weren't priests, but they assisted the priests in worship. Surely this Levite will, will help me. And yet he doesn't. He passes by the other side. Why did the priest and the Levite, leaders in God's temple, ignore the man? And pass by the other side. Some scholars argue that, you know, the Levite and the priest were anxious. They're going down this road. They see this man who's been robbed and half beaten. And they're thinking, wow, if I stop at all, I may get robbed and and beaten. So I better keep on going. They don't want to stop. They don't want to help because they they might put them in danger. In fact, this could be a trap. Maybe this man is to the side of the road and and, and the robbers have put him there knowing that some good-natured person will come and try and help. And then the robbers can, can attack him. So they just want to keep on moving. Or other scholars point out that, well, priests and Levites, that if they were found touching a a carcass, a dead body, then they would be determined unclean. 
And they would no longer be able to do their priestly or Levitical duties within the temple. In fact, we read in Leviticus uh, 21, 1 to 3. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her, he may make himself unclean. Basically, the only people that, only dead bodies that a priest or a Levite should ever touch is someone who's a relative. Otherwise, they shouldn't touch a dead body because if they did, they would be unclean. And we learn from Numbers 19 that they would have to go through this week-long process of becoming clean again. And, and so the priest and the Levite don't want to risk touching a dead body, so they pass by on the other side. But the man wasn't dead, was he? Oh, he's, he's still alive. Why didn't they even get close enough just to see if the man might be alive? I mean, if they, if they helped a, a dying man, but he, continue, he lived, then they wouldn't be unclean. They would be helpful. And, and we read just in Leviticus chapter 19, the law that they would have been very familiar with, that we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we had been beaten and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road, wouldn't we want someone to help us? I preached this sermon at 8.30. Randy Bruckner, a member of our church, uh, told me the story about a neighbor of hers who was... Uh, uh, in uh, New York City, this neighbor was, and uh, the na- neighbor, the husband fell down, he tripped, fell down, and bashed his face on the concrete in New York City, downtown New York City. And, and if you've been to New York City, particularly Manhattan area, these are people just walking by nonstop. And so all these people are walking by, and nobody stops to help until a homeless man comes to help this man who had fallen down. Why didn't the priest and the Levite, why did they pass by the other side? Because like many of us, sometimes we're just too busy. Why do we often pass by on the other side? We're driving to work and we see that man standing on the street corner saying, hungry, please help. And and rather than stopping and, and taking the time to go get some food for them, we just pass by on the other side. Now, real quick, in helping a street person, someone who is needing financial help, you know, I would encourage you to look at the words of Matthew 25. It's the story of the final judgment where God, like a shepherd, is going to separate the sheep and the goats. And if you'll notice, he tells the sheep, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was imprisoned, you visited me. These people met specific needs. They didn't just give money. They took the time to get to know what the need was and they sought to meet the specific need. The best way we can help others is to help meet specific needs. If someone needs food, yes, it's easy just to give them money, but what if we we went the extra step and, and brought them food? Or what if we even, and I've done this before, invited them to eat with us? What a transformative conversation that can be. But usually we're too busy, right? We're on the way to work. We've got things to do. I've got an agenda to, to meet. And, and I see someone in need. back. oh, someone else will help them. And we just pass by on the other side. Or we learn a coworker has gone through a painful divorce. And our heart breaks for them. And we love them. And we love their, their ex-spouse. And we want to help in some way. But, but we don't want to seem nosy. So we don't bring it up. Because, gosh, we don't want to seem like we're intruding. And, and ultimately, rather than ministering to need and their sadness... We pass by on the other side and say nothing. Or a good friend suddenly lose a, loses a loved one. And, and we go to the funeral and, we, and we're there and we tell them that in all integrity, you know, please let me know if there's anything I can do to help. But they never reach out to us and we don't want to keep bringing up their loss of their loved one. And so because we're afraid that we might say the wrong thing, we often say nothing 
and we pass by on the other side. Time Magazine recently did an article, a cover article about Sheryl Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook, whose husband Dave suddenly died of a heart attack while on a treadmill in, in a resort in Mexico. Cheryl is the mother of two young children. Her husband Dave was 47 years old. I mean, this took her, overwhelmed her. She was shocked that he died and didn't know how to pick up the pieces or how she could begin her life again. And, and the people at Facebook were very kind to her, but no one really went, entered into her pain. No one really sat with her and tried to walk with her through it. Her, bars, her boss, Mark Zuckerberg, says this, I think a lot of people wanted to reach out to her, but they didn't know how. There's this whole question of, are you reopening a wound or something? If we bring it up, are we going to make it worse? And so often we say nothing at all. On Thursday, I got to hear Cheryl Sandberg tell her story uh, as a part of the Global Leadership Summit that Willow Creek Church puts on every year. And she talked about how the people who were most impactful for her were the people who practiced the ministry of presence. They were just with her. Instead of saying, let me know if I can do anything to help, they, they just came over and brought her some food. Or they invited her to lunch, or they invited her to dinner, and offered to spend time with her, rather than say, let me know how I can help. They they just made themselves available, and they were there, listening, walking alongside her. Cheryl has written a book called Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. Now, Cheryl is Jewish. She's not not a Christian. I, I wish that she had Jesus Christ in her life. But much of what she says in that book are very Christian principles. It's it's very interesting. Uh, Paul tells us, Philippians, that whatever is right, whatever is good, think on these things. And she began to keep a joy journal where she would write three joyful things that day. And she would see how God's hand was still in the midst of her life. And that, yes, God was in control. And this wasn't the end. But as followers of Christ, we know better than anyone what it means to practice the ministry of presence. Because we have a Savior who is Emmanuel, God with us. A God who did not want to abandon us in our sin, but sent his son to be with us, to walk among us, to teach us, and ultimately to die for us. Yes, God loves us. Okay, here we are. Uh, Luke 10. It's going to be interesting how that records. Uh, We record this service, and so someone's going to download that and go, what happened there? Uh, Luke 10, 33 to 37. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Notice that the lawyer can't even say Samaritan. The hero of the story is a Samaritan. When Jesus says, who was the neighbor to him? The obvious answer would be, well, the Samaritan. But his racial bias prevents him from saying the Samaritan. Like so many Jews, he has a racial uh, resistance to Samaritans. He can't imagine that a Samaritan would ever be good or do something. So he just says the one who showed him mercy. As Kim explained last Sunday, the the hatred between the, the Jews and the Samaritans, it runs deep. In fact, beginning with uh, King Jeroboam, he was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. He led the people of Israel to begin to worship, no longer in Jerusalem, but to worship golden calves in in towns inside of Samaria. And then after King Jeroboam, we have one king after another who continues to practice idolatry, worshiping gods, false gods like Baal or, or Asherah. Yes, the northern kingdom of Israel is very far from God. And then the Assyrians conquered them, and of course... Samaritans are are deported and and some new people are brought in and they begin to intermarry and begin to continue to worship these false gods. 
So that every faithful Jew looked at a Samaritan as a half-breed, as, as someone who's corrupted the true religion of God, the true religion of Yahweh. In fact, it's interesting, in Luke 9, prior to this story, when they first enter into Samaria, because Jesus makes the decision to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria. Many of them would go around Samaria, but Jesus goes through Samaria. And they get to a village, and it, it, we're told that they see if the village will be welcoming to Jesus as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And because the Samaritans hear that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, which is the place of worship for Jews, the Samaritans don't want to welcome Jesus. And so James and John, in great anger, said, Jesus, do you want us to pray to heaven that fire might come down and wipe out this village? And he's like, no. And he rebukes James and John. In fact, he tells the story not only for the lawyer, but for his disciples as well. Because the disciples were guilty of, of a racial bias against Samaritans. And so Jesus wisely makes sure that the Samaritan is the hero of the story, helping us see that, well, that God loves everyone, regardless of race, tribe, or tongue. And that if we truly begin to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we will begin to love what God loves, which is other people. For we will begin to see others as God sees them, people who have been created in his very image. Yes, the Samaritan uh, the lawyer doesn't want to recognize that the Samaritan was the hero. But we read, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan had compassion. The priest and the Levite, they may have the law of God, but they are very far from the heart of God. They may know what God's law says, but they're not really living it out. No, only the Samaritan has compassion, is moved with compassion. Why was the Samaritan Move to compassion. Well, Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were the, were the five books of God. And so they only read those five. But as we can see from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we can see from Leviticus chapter 19, all that they need to know for God's word is found there. That the most important commandment is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second commandment is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so he knew that, as, and the Samaritan knew that as he loved God, he, he began to love what God loved, which is other people, for we've all been created in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves all of us. And so the Samaritan loves this man who's been robbed, this Jewish man who's been robbed and beaten, and treats him the way he would want to be treated, living at Leviticus 19. He binds his wounds with oil and wine. He cleans his wounds and cares for him. He puts him on his own animal so that he now has to walk the remainder of the 17-mile journey while this Jewish man is carried into Jericho, a predominantly Jewish town. Imagine what that would have been like for the Samaritan. Here's a half-beaten Jew, you know, left for dead, and he's bringing him into town. And some Jews may have thought, oh, did the Samaritan do this to the Jew? And they could have beat the Samaritan. And then he comes, and he, he comes to the inn, and he, he gives two denarii, which is two full day's wages. Uh, to the innkeeper, which would have taken care of this Jewish man for at least a week. He cares for him. He provides for him. Why is he so compassionate? Why is he so loving? I believe the Samaritan is so loving because he knows how much he's been loved by God. He can see that he's been created in the image of God. And as he looks at God's law and God's word, he can see that God loves everyone. If you read the very last few verses of Leviticus chapter 19, you'll see that God commands us to take care of the sojourner, the traveler, the one who's the outsider, for you were once sojourners as well. When we focus our lives around loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, in gratitude for God's love for us, then we'll begin to see the world the way God does, 
we'll begin to see others as those who have been created in the very image of God, whom God loves. And as Christians, we know that God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us, that he died for all of us. What neighbor, what coworker, what classmate is God calling us to love this week? Who do we know who's experienced a recent loss? How can we come alongside them and love them with the unconditional love of Jesus? How can we be a, a friend of them by treating them the way we would want to be treated if we were them? If no one comes to mind for you in this moment, I would encourage you to begin praying. Praying that God would help you see who it is he wants you to love. Students are about to go back to school for the first time. I know the lunch hour can sometimes be a time of tension as people sit down at certain tables. What if you invited the outsider to come and sit with you at lunch to let them know that you welcome them, that you love them? As you go back to your office on Monday and you go back to the busyness of this life, pray that God might open your eyes and your ears to those who may be going through a hard time. Invite them to lunch or coffee. Let them know that you're willing to be a listening ear and someone who will pray for them. But this Samaritan, at great cost to himself, did all that he could to care for this man who had been robbed and left for dead. And isn't that ultimately what Jesus did? At great cost to himself, Jesus, who was God, became man, was born as a baby in a lowly manger. He grew up among us, he taught us, he healed us, and ultimately he died for us as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. If God loves us so much, shouldn't we be willing to love others with the unconditional, sacrificial love that we have first received from God? Is as a church, we serve because Jesus Christ first served us. As you read in Mark 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man cannot be served. Came, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And gratitude for God's great service to us, his great grace. May we seek to be servants. May we seek to live out knowing that we are the sent people of God. Missional living means that you're the sent people of God. Wherever you are, God has put you there and he wants you to be there to be a light of his 